0: amen. Love you guys. You're amazing. Thank you, Steve. Baby. Okay, here we go. Week two of Disciple. If you missed last week, I'm going to strongly urge you and encourage you to go listen just simply because I think it will help you really go on this journey with us. It's not to gloat or to boast about myself. I am only boasting, as Paul says, in the Lord. I have no desire whatsoever to be famous. I just want to be effective at doing what he's called me to do. And I believe that my number one responsibility here on earth outside of being an incredible son to the father and to being being the very best husband I could possibly be to my wife and do the very best job I know how to do to raise my sons is to make disciples. And so that's what this series is all about, is really sharing my heart with you, what I feel God has placed and purposed us as a church to do and to be. So we're going to jump right in, and we're going to look at Matthew 28. This is our text for the series. If you want to pin it, you want to circle it, you want to highlight it, whatever you want to do, do that now. Jesus says this in uh, 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, Matthew 28 and 18. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this: I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We learned last week that the dictionary defines disciple as a follower or a student of a teacher, a leader, or a philosopher. We discovered that disciple in the Greek is is simply defined as a pupil or student, literally a learner. A true Christ follower helping a believer learn to be a disciple of Christ in belief and practice. And so the vision for this series, and my heart specifically for this series, is that we will learn to be and help others to become true followers of Jesus. That we would learn to be and to become disciples of Christ in belief and practice. In belief and practice. And last week we looked at the first of our questions and it was simply this, who is called to go and make disciples? And the answer is simply us. Us, we are called to make disciples. And I love Pastor Phil Pringle. He is the global overseer of C3 Church, which is the movement that we are a part of the family, that we are part of His purpose church. He says this, we are not limited to one profession. Whatever we do, we are all disciples of Christ. From plumbers to lawyers, carpenters to inventors, artists to entertainers, Uber drivers to sportsmen, mothers, fathers, students, we're all disciples. And as a disciple, we are all called to go and make disciples. So then if we are all called to go and make disciples, if we're all called to go and to baptize and to teach The commands in which Jesus instructed them and us to teach. How do we do that? How do we do that? I I think it starts with going back and looking at what he taught them, the disciples, to do. I I went back to my journals and and I wanted to find when I actually wrote this question out. Because I've been asking this question for quite some time. And you know, time just seems to flash before your eyes. And it was literally in January of this year that I read this same text. And I asked that question, what are the commands in which you taught your disciples to go and teach? So this has been marinating for nine months. And here we are now taking a, a look at what is the second question of the three that we posed last week. And it's the one that we will spend the majority of the time unpackaging. As I said last week, I do not know how long this series will go. I do not know. It could be four weeks. It could be four months. I do not know. But what I do know is that God has asked me to be responsible and a steward of this focus, of this topic, and in this season right now. So the second question is, what are the commands he instructs them to go and teach? And where do we find them? Well, today, we're going to begin that journey, and we're going to look no further than Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' is famous Sermon on the Mount. If you want to turn with me to your, in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 5, and we're going to look at Scriptures 1 through 12. And while you're doing that, uh, I, I want to take a few moments really quickly to help us understand the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. And before I go any further, I want to share with you what one of my favorite theologians says. This is William Barclay, and he says this, that the Sermon on the Mount is greater even than we think. And I can assure you that as I've been studying this for the last several weeks, my mind is literally being blown. Like the emoji, mind blown, one million times. I sent Katie a couple of quotes. I sent my best friend a couple of quotes, you know, Brandon Cole from Fort Worth. And literally it was before I start, just mind blown. And it was one of these quotes that provided this Mind-blowing experience. He says this. Matthew, in his introduction, wishes us to see that it is the official teaching of Jesus. That being the Sermon on the Mount. That is that it is the opening of Jesus' whole mind to his disciples. Mind blown. Jesus' whole mind in this teaching is being opened to his disciples. That it is the summary of the teaching which Jesus habitually gave to his inner circle. The Sermon on the Mount is nothing less than the concentrated memory of many hours of heart-to-heart communion between the disciples and their master. It is believed to be, and I can imagine it to be true, that the Sermon on the Mount isn't one mega-long sermon. Or teaching, for that matter. If that that were the case, you would have packed an overnight bag for the rest of the week. Rather, it is Matthew's meticulous and well-documented account of Jesus' life, his ministry, and his teachings. Learned throughout his following closely of Jesus. And also practicing his ways. He became a disciple in belief and in practice. Which is why, as William Barclay states, begins with his inner circle. If we look at Matthew 1 through 2, we can quickly draw some conclusions on the audience that Jesus is referring to. So let's do that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says, When he saw the crowds, it says he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to. To teach them then he began to teach them many believe and it is my assumption as well that it all started with the 12 and by the end of these teachings we see that the crowds continue to gather and grow and draw nearer and nearer to Jesus so much so that in the conclusion of these teachings we read in chapter 7 verse 28 through 29 I'm going to do some teaching in this series I see so many faces just like, he hasn't yelled yet. He's still standing in one spot. I wanted to sit for this, to be honest with you, but I knew I wasn't going to be able to contain myself because there is going to be a moment where I'll jump up and down and probably say an inappropriate thing and you'll all laugh and it'll be great. But I just want to forewarn you, I plan in my heart is to be a steward of the word that God's given me and to be a teacher in this series. So you can sit here and look at me like this and that's fine. Just allow your hearts to be postured to receive what God wants you to receive tonight. In Matthew 7 and 28, verse 29, we come to the conclusion of these teachings. And it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. It went from the 12 to the crowds. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. This is so fascinating to me because it gives us an example of Christ-centered multiplication. You see, the whole premise of the kingdom of God is about multiplication, not man-made addition. The Bible is designed to be a guide for you and I. But Jesus himself, through a relationship with him, will lead a group of men into a multitude of people and inevitably will multiply into great crowds who are literally in awe. Like we could add a couple of people to the room and that'd be great, but I'm not interested in addition. I'm interested in making disciples and God having the opportunity through disciples to multiply and advance his kingdom. I'm not interested in building the church. I'm interested in making disciples and allowing Jesus to do what he said he would do, and that is to build the church. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if we take a look at the whole picture, we see 12 commit to following Jesus, learning from him, and then through the Gospels or throughout the Gospels, we see the 12 grow into crowds, or better said, We can see a remnant grow into a multitude. We can see a remnant of people, a a group of men, a small gathering of people. We know that a remnant means a devoted few be multiplied into a crowd. If we just wanted a bottom line for your notes, like just bottom line. Let me give it to you if we go to Jesus. And in this case, if we go up to Jesus, as identified in the text. And we spend time with Jesus, learning from him and practicing his ways, then the outcome would be that multitudes of people would gather and be astonished at his teachings. Not mine. His. Not yours. His. If we would go up to Jesus and we would spend time with Jesus, learning from him and practicing his ways, then the outcome would be that a multitude of people would gather and be astonished at his teachings. So what was he teaching, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you asked it. He was teaching a way of life. He was actually teaching a kingdom way of living. The kind of living that brings heaven to earth. Not the kind of living that just sits around waiting for us to go to heaven. We're not talking about sitting around locking the doors, throwing away the key, and just waiting for our exit strategy. We're talking about the kind of life, a kingdom way of living, a kind of living that will literally bring heaven to earth. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is literally a pattern to bring heaven to earth. It's a pattern. And over these next few weeks, we're going to look at patterns for you and I to begin to form and be formed by so that we might be able to partner with God. Our Father, whom is in heaven, whose name is holy, who wants nothing more than to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not in heaven as we hope it would be here on earth. Some of us are sitting around going, man, I sure hope heaven is like this. What if actually earth could be like heaven? Well, friends, let me let you in on a little secret. It can be. If we allow ourselves, if we would commit ourselves and devote ourselves to not just believing in Jesus, but practicing the patterns in the ways in which He taught us and teaches us through Scripture. And so, the first pattern goes something like this, or maybe better stated, it is titled something like this: the Beatitudes beatitudes man I gotta tell you this I I could I had like seven different ways to teach this I could do this beatitudes topic for seven weeks I'm not I'm gonna try to do it in the next 13 minutes so buckle up beatitudes is is defined this way it's it's the Greek word makarios which is described as blessed Or happy. This one, actually, I love, enviable. The Beatitudes or the Beatitude kind of life is somebody who's blessed, happy, enviable. So as I read to you these Beatitudes, I want you to think about it through that lens. I want you to think about it through the lens of blessed or blessedness, happy or enviable. I want to challenge you that, oh, don't think about it through the Outward feeling of blessed, happy, or enviable, but the inward transformative power of Jesus that brings true blessing and true happiness and true envy. I believe that envy is actually a kingdom word in the right context, and we might discover that here in a moment. See, ready? Verse 3, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. If you are blessed, or sorry, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me, me being Jesus. You ever been insulted? You ever been persecuted? You ever had anybody falsely say something about you? Spoken ill of you? Have you ever insulted somebody, persecuted somebody, spoke falsely about somebody, spoke evil against them or about them? Jesus says, be glad and rejoice. That's crazy. Like, you you want me to be joyful when somebody's speaking ill of me? Like, I'm sensitive. you look at me sideways I start tearing up and I'm already replaying all the encounters we've had trying to figure out what did I do what did I say I'm so sorry man and yet Jesus is like hey guys listen here's the deal you're going to be insulted you're going to be persecuted they're gonna speak falsely against you evil is actually out to get you because you choose to follow me Oh, by the way, just in case we're ever wondering, Jesus never demands that you follow him. He invites you to do so. And so if you choose to follow me, then be glad and rejoice because, listen to this, your reward is great in heaven. Which now changes. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let whatever reward is in heaven come to the earth. If it means that I'm going to be persecuted, spoke negatively of, because I stand for and I am a follower of Jesus, then I'm going to be glad and rejoice because I know my rewards in heaven. And every day when I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I'm just going to slide in. Also, whatever inheritance is up there, go ahead and just drop some down on me because I'm feeling some kind of way today. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, by the way, this is nothing new under the sun yet again. Blessed are you or you are blessed. To be blessed, to be happy or to be envied in this context essentially describes a true believer. A disciple who is in an enviable position from receiving God's provisions or favor. Which literally extends his grace to the world around us. Let me say that again. To be blessed, to be happy, or be envied in this context essentially describes a true believer. A disciple who is in an enviable position from receiving God's provision, God's grace, God's favor, God's love, God's forgiveness, which literally will extend his grace beyond yourself beyond your family, beyond your neighbor, to the world around us. So if we go back to last week, as I asked the question in, our, in the conclusion of our service, are you a disciple? You'd have thought I told some people to jump off a cliff. Some of you might have missed that or, or left really questioning your, yourself, how do I know? Well, it's, this is how you know. A, disimple, a disciple... Is, are those who follow him and learn from him, who believe in him and devote themselves to practicing his ways. They are happy. They are envied. They are blessed. Not because they don't experience hardships or difficulties, but rather because they have a personal relationship with Jesus. Who daily seek him and live with the assurance that he is with them and will never leave them. It is then they are known and seen as blessed, as happy. I was at uh, a basketball workout yesterday, and we've got this young player that just uh, transferred in. And uh, the coaches were saying uh, that over the last three weeks, he's been a part of our program. They've never seen him frown. The dude is literally always smiling. Like always smiling. So then I'm thinking, surely there's going to be a moment during this workout he's going to frown. I'm going to get him. Like I'm, I'm out like and I'm preparing to preach and teach this message and I'm like this dude is going to frown. He literally got rejected at the rim by one of our other players and he goes up to the dude and he shakes his hand with a smile on his face. And says, Thank you very much. <laughs> You're some kind of crazy dude. But yet what God was showing me in that moment was an outward display of somebody who has an internal joy that cannot be shaken. In other words, happier those who are not satisfied or influenced or discouraged by the things of this world. And boy, let me tell you, there will be plenty of opportunities for all those things to happen, yeah. but are living in a permanent state of happiness because of who they are in a relationship with Jesus. 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 So, are you living in a permanent state of happy? Even when the world throws the kitchen sink at you, can you still be full of joy? I, I many of you know this. I, I went on sabbatical uh, a couple weeks ago, and I went to New York. And it's so funny when I tell people I went on sabbatical and I went to New York. They're like, are you crazy? What is peaceful about New York? But before I, I, I answer that question, one of, the, one of the best parts about my trip is that um, for some reason, Enterprise really likes me. And especially in New York, they really like me. And I have no idea why. I've only just started using Enterprise. But anyway, they upgraded me to to a convertible, a Mustang GT convertible. It was incredibly awesome. (laughs) Never have I driven through the streets of New York, Manhattan, and nor have I ever done it in a convertible. So it was like two times I did something for the very first time. But it was so amazing because I didn't have any music on. I did when I left there. I'm not going to lie. There's a few songs that I played just because I thought it was appropriate for me in my past, and it just set my heart right. (laughs) Gave me something to ask for forgiveness of. Drop down, screaming out. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> just moving on. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm driving through the streets of Manhattan, and man, I pull up to the stoplight, and just, gosh, it was so incredible, and yet so terrifying and kind of scary, but also awesome. You could just hear all of these different sounds. You could hear some people over here just having the time of their life. You can hear somebody over here ha- fighting, literally. You see another guy just walking through the streets with a machete like it was just an, another day. I kind of did kind of, cl- you know, clinch a couple times. Uh, you see this other person just literally skipping through the streets of New York, just as happy as happy could be, just not a care in the world. You've got this other person that just looks entirely rejected, like life had been sucked out of them. And it just gave me this beautiful and, and real and honest look and sound of what humanity really looks like right now. And yet in the city of New York, people are asking, how can you find peace in Solitude in a city, especially like New York. Well, the thing that I've discovered is that I can find peace anywhere I go because it's not the surroundings that gives me peace. It's the relationship I have with my father that gives me peace. And so what I'm talking about in this context, this idea of having an internal joy or happiness is the difference between the world's view of happiness, which is often externally driven, flawed, and fleeting, versus God's invitation to an internal state, a permanent state of happiness and joy. William Barclay says this. I've got two for you tonight. The world can win its joys, and the world can equally well lose its joys. A change in fortune, a collapse in health, The failure of a plan, the disappointment of an ambition, even a change in the weather can take away the fickle joy the world can give. But the Christian has a serene and untouchable joy which comes from walking forever in the company and in the presence of Jesus Christ. He says the greatness of the Beatitudes is that they are not wistful glimpses of some future beauty. They are not even golden promises of some distant glory. They are triumphant shouts of bliss for a permanent joy that nothing in the world can ever take away. A permanent joy that nothing in the world can ever take away. Could you imagine? Could you imagine a world? Where everyone was living a beatitude kind of life. Where everyone was living a kingdom way of living. With a permanent joy that nothing or no one in the world could take away. You know, for so long, I had this picture because I, if you don't know, there's like some foundational passage of scripture for us as a church and and one of those is Acts 2 and 42 through 47. And what I what I so love about this text is it covers essentially all of these things in just a few short passages of Scripture. And it calls us to be devoted to the Word of God and to fellowship. And not just like passing fellowship, but deep-rooted koinonia-type fellowship, where we break bread with one another, and we get real with one another, and we pray for each other, and we pick each other's kids up, and we find out that somebody's sick, and we come to their aid, or they're going through a hardship, and we we raise and donate it to them because we just want them to know we care for them. Whatever it might be, that deep type of koinonia relationship. And then we have communion with each other, which means we're always sitting around the table because that's what Jesus says. He says, every time you do this, you sit around the table and you break bread and you have wine. Do this in remembrance of me. But then this beautiful thing happens. They start praying for one another and all of a sudden this great joy comes over them and it results in greater generosity. But what I picture when I read that text, Is not us dispersing and going into the world what I see is a people who are walking throughout their everyday life with a deep-rooted joy that is unshakable unchangeable and as a result literally people are looking at your life and this is where I believe that envy is a biblical word and they are envious of the joy that you have because the world is literally falling down on top of you and yet you're still standing with an assurance with a confidence with a hope that nothing in the world could possibly take you out. But Jesus came into your life and he transformed you from the inside out and it left you with a joy and a happiness that no one can take from you. What if we lived with that joy? What if we lived every day with that happiness, with that blessedness? And as a result, crowds of people would begin to gather. And we're being added to the church, to the body of Christ every day. Not because we just added a few, but because we committed our life to living a beatitude kind of life. Could you imagine? So I want to ask you this question. What is keeping you from living with a permanent state of happiness? What is keeping you from living with that kind of joy? Maybe just let me ask you this are you happy? Like, really? I'm not talking about worldly stuff happy, like how much money you got in the bank and how many cars you got in the driveway. Forget all that stuff, man. It could be gone tomorrow. Heck, it'll be gone when you get home. What are you going to do about it? But I'm talking about real happiness. A happiness where nothing in this world can shake you. I'm preaching to myself. There's some things that can still shake me. But I'm trying every day to live a beatitude kind of life. A kingdom life. I wonder if you're like me. Maybe you're living unhappy right now. The world is robbing you of happiness, heart happy. Are you happy? If the answer is no, if the answer is no, and it's okay if it is. If you don't know this about us, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. Maybe it's because you've never... Ever had a personal relationship with Jesus? Because I assure you, if you have, there'd be at least an ounce of happiness in you. There'd be some kind of happy on the inside of you. You might have to dig a little deep. You might have to, you know, trying to find like your boots. You just have to dig through the closet because you got too many shoes. Like you're just trying to find them. You got to search and you got to look, but you know it's in there. But for some of you, you just know it's not. You've never experienced that kind of happy before. It's, it's possible. No, 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 I know it's certain you've never, ever had a relationship with Jesus. Well, maybe you did, and you just lost them in your closet. You hung them up one day and you forgot. You forgot where you put them. You got discouraged. You, you got a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe it got hard. Maybe life just kind of started coming at you faster than you were ready for. Maybe somewhere along the way you got offended or hurt. Maybe somebody misrepresented Jesus along the way, and as a result, it sent you running from him rather than to him. Or maybe you're not happy right now because you've got a weight or a sin that you've been lugging around. It's just keeping you from imagining happiness in any area of your life. Can I just ask you to stand to your feet tonight, church, as we get ready to close? Maybe tonight's the night that you get to lay that bag down. Maybe tonight's the night that you lay it down and you just confess it. It's to you and the Lord. I love how Brandon said, this is not about who's to your left or to your right. This is just between you and him. So I'm just going to ask everyone to close your eyes and just do me that, please, just out of respect for the people in the room. And if that's you tonight, you're not happy. I couldn't even get the question out of my mouth. And you're like, that's me. And maybe it's for one of those three reasons. You've never had a relationship with Jesus. You did, but he's buried in your closet somewhere because you got hurt or offended and you just didn't think that it was worth it anymore and you ran away from him, said it to him. Or you're just dealing with a sin or a weight that's so unbearable that's keeping you from even imagining, let alone uttering the words happiness out of your mouth. If that's you would, you, would you just do me a bold and courageous thing? Right now, would you just lift your hands to heaven and say, "That's me"? No one's looking. This is just between you and the Lord. This is not to judge you. It's not to call you out. This is just simply an act of surrender, saying, "That's me." I've never had a relationship with Jesus. I did, however. Oh man, I'm just dealing with something so big that I just don't know what to do with it. Tonight's your night to to do exactly what Jesus calls you to. He says, "Lay it at my feet." I love you that much. You can lay it there, and I promise you, you don't have to pick it up when you leave. Your kids, you got to pick up. Your sin. Your weight, this burden, you don't. You can leave it right here at the altar. If that's you, just every eye closed, say, that's me. I'm going to lift my hand to heaven right now. I want, I want a relationship with Jesus. I want real happiness. I want real joy. Just as, you're, as we're just standing here for a few moments, I'm not in a hurry. If that's you, just lift your hands to heaven. I want happiness. I'm not happy. I want it right now. Thank you, Jesus. Right across this room. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know every heart. You know every situation. You know every circumstance. I pray right now, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you go to work. And I pray for every person who's never had a relationship with you, that they would just simply say this. Jesus, I ask you to come into my heart. Forgive me. Redeem me. And help me to live with real happiness that is only found in you. For those who have run away from you, Father, I thank you that this is their moment where they're turning back to you. And I pray that as they do, they've made their move, they've lifted their hand. I pray that just like the scripture reads, the father went running to the prodigal son and he met him right where they were and he wrapped his arms around them and he kissed them and he threw a party for them. Father, I pray that any of us in this room right now who are coming back to you right now would experience that kind of love, an outpouring of love that would only come and is only possible through the Father. Father, for the last group, I pray for anybody who is holding on to a weight, to a sin so unbearable. Father, tonight they'd have the courage to lay it down at your feet. That they lay it down at your feet. Father, do that for us right now in Jesus' name. Bring healing. Father, just come alongside them and help them let go of that thing. I pray that even in this moment they would begin to whisper it to you. Forgive me, Father, for... And as you say that thing, watch and see if it won't just release a weight off your shoulders like you've never experienced before. And that God would begin to replace your sin and your weight and your pain and your shame with real joy, with real happiness. Father, I ask that you would do all these things in your son's name, Jesus, who you sent to the cross so that we might have and receive and experience forgiveness in this moment right here, right now. The Bible says in Nehemiah 8, this is Nehemiah who is responsible for coming and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They start holding services again. And he says the people were so so discouraged and so still confused that yet they didn't know what was fully happening. And it says, then he said to them, go and eat with what is rich. Drink what is sweet and send portions to those who have nothing prepared. Since today now is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. Because the joy of the Lord is now your strength. So I thank you that tonight, if you're coming into a relationship with Jesus, if you're coming back to Jesus, or you're laying down your sin, your burden at the foot of the cross, that he would replace it with his strength, which is joy. And that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. Father, we ask you to do all these things in your son's name. In the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. So let me close with this. What are the commands he instructs them to go and to teach? Where do we find them? Well, we're going to find them through this, this sermon on the mount. But as we do that, I want to encourage you throughout the week to go to Jesus and spend time with him. Learn from him and practice his ways. Practice these beatitudes. Walk with the assurance and the confidence that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Live according to the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom way of life, a living. Live with a beatitude. If you're going to have an attitude, have a beatitude. Live the kind of life that brings heaven to earth. Amen.